0: Good morning. morning. Lively, I love it. Hey, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat underneath you or in the seat in front of you. While you're turning there, I want to add a little more flavor to what Jamin said. My name is Andres Rodriguez. I am one of the ministers on staff on the group's team. I've been on staff for four years as of next week, which I'm really excited about. I'm married to a beautiful woman whose name is Nikki. We've been married for six-plus years, and we have two little boys, two little Rambos running around our house, Uh, Cruz, who is four, and Gus, who is one. So we've got a busy household, and I'm really excited this morning to have the opportunity to share John 17 with you. So without further ado, we're going to jump into John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said Father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just everything that is in John 17, Lord, for the truths that you are good, that you are glorious, that you have such beauty and excellence and wisdom. And Father, just a prayer, uh, just a reminder that Jesus is uh, near to us that he is our advocate that he is glorious and in being glorious lord he desires for us to follow him with all of our lives and so just thank you for that truth and just a beautiful time to worship this morning lord what a beautiful time just to um, recall of all the goodness and truths that you are father I pray that you be with us in this time that we continue just to shape all of our lives revolving around you in christ's name i pray amen all right so two years ago Barner released a study over how americans pray In the report, they said prayer is not only the most common faith practice among American adults, it's also one of the most complex and multifaceted. Within the study, 79% of the people said they have prayed at least once in the past three months. Among the statistics shared, here's some interesting ones, 12% of people pray for their sleep. And all parents in the room said, amen. 28% of the people who pray say they have no faith, they adhere to no particular faith. And a study concluded that the vast majority of people, regardless of faith, prayed alone and silently. Listen to how the study concluded. It said this, People pray mostly alone. It's a solitary activity defined primarily by the immediate needs and concerns of the individual. So prayer is largely private, but also people pray about what is really important to them. And so this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture, and, in, Jesus, and in, in John 17, Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for his future followers. And yet, unlike this study, this prayer is not private. We get a window into what he says to God. And so if we could agree that prayer, that people pray about what is really important to them, and we have this front row seat into what Jesus prays, what I want to consider is this. What is important to Jesus? And so if you pray for what is important to you, and this is Jesus praying, I simply want to ask a question, what is important to him? Again, this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer in the library of scripture, and it's a capstone to the last hours that he is spending with his disciples before his death. And he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he begins his prayer. We jump back into John 17. He says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so the first thing we see that is important to Jesus is this God's glory. Like we said back in April, glory is one of those words that in a setting like this can be so familiar that we can easily take for granted what it means. It's not just a church word. And now, in full transparency, glory is one of the words that's gave me the, given me the most fits in preparation for this sermon. It carries so much package into one term. Glory is a word that is um, it's used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's a word that's still used in our day today. And unlike most words, it still holds a sense of sacredness when so little in our world is still sacred. And so if Jesus is talking to his father before his death, and what is front of mind for him is God's glory, we cannot be wrong about what this means. So why is it so important to Jesus? Glory is a rich and deep word. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's the word kavod, which most literally translated means weight. Like it weighs a lot, like this is heavy. In Greek, it's the word doxa. So the doxology, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below, that is a praise, a song of God's glory. And so the best way I've come to understand this is that glory is like matter. And what does matter mean? It has two meanings. Matter is both physical substance and matter is to be of importance. And so think about how we use matter when talking about people. I am a matter and I do matter. And similar to glory, And similar to matter, glory is the physical manifestation of beauty and wisdom and power and excellence, and glory is value and honor. Glory is to be of importance. And so it's like this, my mother is a pastry chef, and so every year she would make my birthday cakes from scratch. And so when my mother bakes, her kavod, her doxa, is her tres leches cake. It's unbelievable. It's a physical manifestation of her excellence in the art of pastries on display to eat and enjoy. And in eating it, I could either glorify her by rejoicing and thanking her, or I could throw it on the ground and by so doing risk my life (laughs) because you do not offend a Latino mother. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. See, there is a right response to what my mom created. And all of our life is shaped by how we are responding to what we believe is glorious or what we believe matters. Now, we might not use that language, but our lives revolve around, about, around what we see as having the most gravity and the most significance. Our closest friends, relationships, our hobbies, our career aspirations, our possessions, they are what we have defined in our lives as having the most glory, the most importance, what matters most. Even our vacations revolve around going to glorious destinations, places that bring awe and wonder at their beauty and their splendor. Think about what people post most about, mountains, beaches, waterfalls, canyons. I've yet to hear anyone say, we are so excited about our upcoming vacation, we've been saving up all of our miles to go to Topeka, Kansas. Why? It's not as glorious of a spot. That delight or curiosity in what matters most, in what is most glorious, finds its beginning in what we were made for. So let's back it up a bit. In Genesis 1, in the creation narrative, God created all of the world and declaring it was good. And then he created mankind and claimed it was very good. Why? His glory was manifested in all of creation and mankind was uniquely gifted with Glory with importance. Because they were made, we were made from his image, from the image of God. We were made to see God as what matters most and respond rightly. And this is how the story begins. And then in Genesis 3, the creation narrative takes a hard turn as humanity chose their own glory over the greatest glory, the glory of God. And we call this the fall from glory. And since then, man has chosen lesser glories over the greater glory. Look at how Romans says it. Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And yet God promised that this would not be the end of the story but that he would restore all things back to right standing. And throughout the Bible, we see him making right on this promise, coming to a resounding crescendo in Jesus. Look at how John opens up this gospel. He says this, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men." And so John tells us Jesus is on a mission, both to show and recover the glory of God in our lives, and yet he has been saying throughout the book that his hour, the hour of his glorification is not yet here throughout three years of his ministry. And then we see in chapter 12, he begins and he says a prayer, he says, my hour has come, and he comes back around to that prayer in John 17, and read it with me again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so this hour, what he's talking about, is his death, the cross. This is not simply the hour that Jesus has been preparing for. It's the hour the whole entire world has been anticipating. It's the fulfillment of a promise that was made in the garden that God would send a rescuer to save humanity from sin. It's the moment when everything will change, when sinful creatures can once again enjoy fellowship with the creator. And when spiritual life triumphs over spiritual death. And Jesus stops to pray, looking forward at what he will endure in the cross. And of all the words that he can use to describe in this moment, the word he chooses is glory. Not in him coming to of all the glory of God that has been seen in creation, in his mighty acts on behalf of his people, Jesus says the place where the glory of God will be recovered is also the place where God's glory will be most visible. Not in him coming to shower his might and power through the destruction of sinners, but in the destruction of himself to come and pardon and save sinners. The cross of Jesus is where God's glory is seen and our lives are changed to respond rightly to him. And this is a huge part of my story. So I was born in Houston, but I was raised in College Station, Texas. Yep. I didn't go to AM, uh, but I was brainwashed Aggie early in my childhood. And I loved growing up in that town, but, that, but its landscape does not leave much for awe and wonder. It just doesn't. But in 2003, I was invited to a Young Life camp. I was invited to Young Life camp in Colorado. And before that, I'd never seen mountains before, I'd never seen snow before. Elevation just didn't compute in my mind. And from the moment I stepped off the bus, I experienced the glory of God in creation like never before. The mountains looked fake, as if a backdrop was going to just fall and then just show flat behind it. In the middle of a round of Frisbee golf, I saw a snowbank from across a creek and I chunked my Frisbee down, and I ran as fast as I could to dive into snow for the first time. I also learned that day that snow is not as soft as I thought it would be. (laughs) The The stars shined brighter than I'd ever seen, and yet I was unable to rightly respond to it. All it did was pique my curiosity to a glory I didn't know or have access to. See, the glory of God in creation could only get me so far. I had lived 16 years of my life giving glory to things that did not deserve it. But seeing the glory of God in creation could not overcome that until the night of June 5th of 2003 when I heard the story of Jesus for what seemed like the first time in my life. And I saw the greatest picture of God's character and his beauty and his excellence was not found in all that he had created. All of that pointed toward him. The greatest display of his goodness and of his character was not in what I was seeing, but in what I was hearing. That Jesus Living the life that I could not live and dying the death that I deserve to die on the cross and resurrecting to proclaim victory over sin and over death. This was done so I could rightly respond. And in following him and responding in surrender to his beauty and his excellence, the God responsible for those mountains and snow is infinitely bigger than me, infinitely more powerful than me. I had lived a life of ignoring him and giving to other things what he deserves, but in the cross, Christ reveals what is important and deserving of praise and honor. He forgives and invites the world to follow. He called me to respond to that glory, and my life has been forever changed because of that. What you pray for is important, and God's glory is important to Jesus, so important that he gave his life, and in giving his life, we see the glory of God. And so God's glory is important to Jesus. And here's what else is important to Jesus. You are important to Jesus. So from verses 6 to 26, Jesus prays for his disciples, both immediate and future. He prays for the 12, and he prays for you. And so as I studied every time I got to this passage, I found myself just leaning in a little bit more toward the end. See, it makes sense for Jesus to be praying for his disciples. He knew them. He ate with them. He played with them. He lived with them. But for me, like it can be easy for me if I'm honest at moments to think that if I saw Jesus face to face that he wouldn't even know my name. And yet the Bible speaks into this. He knows us. He prays for us. Jesus is an advocate for us. So, if we pray for what is important to us and Jesus prays for what is important to him, then pay attention. Look at me. We are important to him. You are important to Jesus. John 17 is called a high priestly prayer. A priest is an intermediary between God and man, and throughout the Old Testament, and Throughout the book of the scriptures, we see throughout the, people of, the history of the people of Israel, the priests would intervene and intercede on behalf of the people of God to God, advocating for them. And this was done through prayer and sacrifice, prayers for forgiveness and sacrifice to atone for the sins committed by the nation and individuals of Israel. And John 17 is a display of Jesus being the even greater high priest. Hebrews talks about him this way, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Hebrews 7 says, consequently, he is unable to save us from those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in 1 John, it says this, it says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And as Jesus prays, he advocates for his disciples. But unlike priests of the past, he did not bring a sacrifice of a lamb. He offers himself as a sinless lamb to take away sin, the perfect atonement. He is both priest and sacrifice. And in John 17, we see him being a priest for us. He prays for his disciples. He prays for us. He prays for me. He prays for you. He knows your name. He advocates on your behalf to God the Father. And so five years ago, I interned at TVC Flower Mound, and my first weekend on staff was completely overwhelming. I'd never been on a church staff before, let alone a church of that size, and I had kind of those first day of school jitters, just kind of all these lies and insecurities, kind of things just kind of flooding me. And as I was walking aimlessly around the lobby, a man walked straight up to me, and he looked me in the eyes and said, hey, you're Andreas, right? Hi, my name is Brian, and this is my wife, Shanti. I wanted to introduce myself and let you know that we have been praying for you, and will be. We're so glad you've joined our church. And I was, I just stopped and said, for for me, like an intern, I had nothing to give, no power, no position, and yet out of kindness and grace and love, this couple showered me with prayer, and this impacted me. It blessed me, it comforted me. And if this is how I felt knowing that a person I had not met before was praying for me when I considered myself to be of little importance, how much more meaningful should it be to know that Jesus, the King of King, the Lord of Lords, 100% God, 100% man, is not only praying for me right now, But he began praying for me 2,000 years ago, knowing that he would take me from College Station to Colorado, to Houston, to Dallas, back down to Houston, back up to Dallas, all this time covering me in prayer. See, John 17 is a flash forward, not only in what he was praying for his disciples, not only what he was praying for you, but it's a glimpse into what he's doing right now, that he is praying for you. He knows you. He loves you. His grace and compassion are speaking over you, not in the past, but in the present. So what is he praying for us? Let's see what he is asking for on our behalf. And so throughout the rest of the chapter, if I am able to summarize for time's sake the two words that capture the rest of his prayer, Jesus is asking that God would sanctify and unify. He prays for sanctification and he prays for unity. And hear me, these are the two movements of being a disciple or follower of Jesus, that you become more like Jesus and less like the world, and you become closer and more unified to God, therefore becoming closer and more unified to one another. Look, at me, look with me at verse 17. Jesus prays this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. To be sanctified is to be set apart. For followers of Jesus, this is to mature in what we see as having as as being most glorious, to love what is most glorious and pursue it with all of our lives. And then he continues his prayer in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be with us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so he says and he asks that we would be unified, as unified as Jesus is with God and the Holy Spirit. And not broadly unified around preferences or political views or parenting styles or sports teams or life sages, but unified around the greatest common love. And Jesus is praying this for us because we are important to him. And he is praying that we would be sanctified and unified. But if we pay attention, he does not say that sanctification comes by deciding, I want to be more sanctified. Or that unity between two people comes by saying, I want to be more unified. Those come as a result. Think about the people you are closest to. You are close not because you met and said, hey, let's be close. But that closeness grew from shared love and a shared commitment. So what is the thing that will bring sanctification in our lives and unity together? In this, Jesus goes back to God's glory. The thing that is important to him sanctifies and unifies us as it becomes important in our lives. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus at this moment is at the right hand of the Father petitioning for you. On your behalf that you would live in glory and glorify his name. The name that is above all names. God's glory is important to Jesus. You are important to Jesus. And God's glory mattering to you is important to him. So let's bring this down to everyday life. How do we align our lives with Jesus' prayer? How do we revolve our lives around the glory of God? So let's get a little practical. Mark Sayers is a pastor and theologian from Melbourne, Australia. And he says that you worship that which you are focused on. And this isn't just truth as defined by Christianity. But advertisers and marketers have caught on to this idea. See, we live in what economists are calling the attention economy. And nearly every waking moment, we are inundated with alerts and attention-grabbing signals that vie for our focus, that vie for our attention. And here's the thing. It's working. Whether we know it or not or recognize or acknowledge it, our technology is shaping us. The average American, and this is the average American, watches over four and a half hours of television per day. Our iPhones have become like appendages to our body. On average, we touch our screens over a thousand times a day. And so I've even tried to turn my cell phone off for like four hours, and I keep on reaching for it like it's a phantom limb. And this attention economy is shaping us, not only in our habits, but also in our views and in our loves. They present us with a hope of glory that will not last, that will not sustain, that distracts our attention away from the truest glory to lesser glories. And hear me, sanctification will not happen if the thing that gets our focus and attention does not sanctify us, or worse, is making us less like Jesus instead of more like Jesus. And unity won't happen if the issues that get most of our focus and our attention are not weighty enough to unite us together. These things only happen with the glory that is important to Jesus, becomes important to us. And that will be evident in what gets our attention and our time and our focus. And that's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, And we with un, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul describes glorifying God as gazing upon the glory of the Lord. And as we are gazing upon the glory of the Lord, we are transfixed on Jesus and we are transformed, transformed to love what is most Glorious. So let me tell you how this has played out in my life. Jamin shared a couple weeks ago of the epidemic that is taking place in the lives of those who are in vocational ministry. And he was going through the list of indicators of those who are suffering burnout. And last December, I could check off nearly every one of those. I felt empty, check, lost, check, sad, check, aimless, check. And so I spent the Christmas break resting and thinking like, how did I How did I get here? Have I always been here? When had I not felt like this before? Is this part of just being an adult and having a mortgage and a job and children, and all these different things? And as I was kind of considering this, the Lord recalled to me, when I was 16, I left the glory of Colorado, yet the glory that had changed me on the cross stayed in front of me. And, as I, and every morning, I would wake up and I would read and I would pray. And those are rhythms that had stuck with me throughout my journey in following Jesus. And as I look back throughout my life, I realize that those rhythms, when they were all present in every, se- they were present in every season of following Jesus. Rhythms that had shaped me, that carried me. Another way of saying it is that whenever I was abiding in the vine, whenever I was abiding in Jesus, that these things shaped me, that they helped me, they tethered me to what is true. When I was loving what was most glorious, these things were not a duty, but it was a delight. And life just felt different. It felt more vibrant. And looking back over the past year, last year, or even, maybe even before then, there were just some things I'd, I'd left. I'd slowly been shaped by other things. And in December, I realized what I'd gotten away from and currently am still in the process of returning to. And it's a slow, sweet progress and journey. But one of the things, a lot has changed since December in my life, but one of the first things to change was that I decided if this is the way that our economy is working and these are the shaping items in our life, then what I wanted to do was the first thing I wanted to do when I woke up was read and pray. I wanted to read the word of God and I wanted to pray. And I wanted to do this every morning was open the scriptures and pray before I check my cell phone or my email or sports center or the news And so I made that decision, and I began my day gazing upon the glory of God, praying for him to shape my heart and mind around what was most glorious. And I had a Bible reading plan, but I didn't stay hard and fast to it. If I had the capacity that morning, I would read all of it. If not, maybe just one chapter. If I woke up late, then I would just read one psalm. And so whatever I was able to do that morning, I did. See, what Paul knew and economists know is that what we focus on is what we worship. And what we worship is what we believe is most glorious. And so has this been a perfect year? Absolutely not. In fact, there's moments where I feel my sin more than I've ever felt it. And yet, I don't know that I've ever felt the presence of God as close or near as I have this year either. He has become so much more glorious than I could have imagined. Not because I did anything, but because I am more attentive to him and day by day, morning by morning, gazing upon the glory of God for our transformation. And so I don't know what this looks like for you in your life. Maybe it's, time, maybe it's taking time to assess what rhythms and practices are in your life and how you're being shaped. Are you abiding in the vine? And yet I invite you that the invitation is there to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to align our lives and our time and our prayers with those of our great High Priest, our King, Jesus. Let's pray. Fathers, thank you for your Word. Father, I pray that we, with unveiled faces, would just continue to unite around. Your kingdom to gaze upon what is most glorious. Father, I pray that those things that are lesser glories that we are maybe have been shaped around or revolve around, Lord, I pray that, that they would just fall by the wayside as we look at you as having the most glory and importance in our lives. I just thank you for just a sweet reminder that you are good, you are kind, that you are merciful, and that there is a sweet and open invitation right now, Father, to follow you. And Lord, I thank you that in this moment now you are praying just comfort and blessings over each one of us who follow Jesus in this room. Be with us as we continue on throughout a week. We love you and thank you in Christ in I pray. Amen.